Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have part one of a two, potentially three-part, we'll see how long I uh, go on these podcasts, uh, but most likely a two-part series about program design. Uh, so brief intro, we got a couple things to uh, announce and share with you guys um, and ideally get you involved a little bit so that uh, I can make these these series that we have in mind a little bit better. Uh, but the first thing, most important thing is letting you know what this is even about. So we are constantly trying to evolve and improve the podcast for you, really. Like I've been in this podcast game for a long time now. I think we have over 650 episodes out as you're listening to this, maybe this is actually number 650. I know we're close to that. Uh, right now, I think we're like one or two away. So uh, because it's just me here, no Travis, I couldn't even ask him to tell you when this is going to, what episode this is going to be. But uh, point being, we have a lot. We've been doing this for a while. It's gone. It's been really cool to see this evolution, right? We've It started as a uh, Facebook Live Q&A in my garage, and then I brought in a partner, and then it turned into two guys on a snowball mic hovering over a table a little too close for uh, comfort or uh, not to get spit all over each other while trying to record because that is one thing I definitely don't recommend when running a successful podcast is sharing a mic. <laughs> but you know what? You do what you got to do at first. So it, it's evolved quite a bit, you know, and now I'm sitting here in our, uh, in our little studio at the headquarters, and it's a lot more professional. It's a lot better quality. And we've kind of covered a lot of grounds. You know, we've done mindset podcasts. We've done topic podcasts. We've done a ton of interviews. We've done Q&As. We've done um, series. We've done uh, overrated, underrated. And uh, there's a few podcasts I listen to personally, and I really like that they do this. I've done these in the past. I really like that I did this. And we're going to bring back the series, right? So the plan here is pretty simple. I've done some polls on Instagram. I've done some uh, digging into our hosting to see what people download and listen to the most. And the truth is, is that, you know, there's, there's quite a few topics that are, that are popular ones for you guys. But also I realized that you tend to like series, right? So when I can really dive deep into a topic and I can spread it out over a few episodes so you can get, you know, an hour focused on X, Y, Z, right? Or 30 to 60 minutes per episode, let's say on part one, part two, part three, part four, maybe even, and we go over a really in-depth thing. Um, and so that's what we're going to start doing. It's going to be either a two-week or up to a month process, and we're going to have topics. So what I want you guys to do is, is as always, there's a, there's a question box uh, that you can click inside the description of this podcast. It's called, it, I think it just says Ask Boom Boom or Ask Boom Boom Your Questions Here or whatever it may be. Um, for new listeners, my nickname is Boom Boom. You don't see it as much anymore, but uh, my nickname has always been Cody Boom Boom McBroom. That's why it says Ask Boom Boom uh, Your Question. But Click that. It's a Q&A form. So although this is not asking for a Q&A, but just write in there a uh, topic, right? Like topic suggestion, and then give it to me. Uh, something that you know I can go in depth on. So uh, if it's a brief question, just ask a brief question. We'll put on the Q&A. But something that I can go in depth on and I can spread it out over podcasts that you would like to hear, right? Um, be that uh, stress management tools, be that uh, kind of like brain hacks, so productivity, clarity, focus, things like that. Uh, maybe it's uh, something with nutrition. We've done the fat loss uh, nutrition series, so you can check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. And there's like, shit, I want to say that one has at least four parts, if not more. Uh, but we're going to bring be bringing this back. This first one that we're starting with is the program design series. So we're going to have uh, part one and part two. Today, I'm going to dive into part one. Uh, and then next week, uh, you'll hear part two. It might be the week after. It just depends on the interview schedule. But regardless, we're going to have a two-part series here. Um, if it goes too long, we might spread it into three. 
Um, but right now we got part one, which is assessing the client and setting the goal and timeline of this individual and then determining volume, intensity, and frequency. But within these, we have goal setting, mobility, flexibility, instability, and weaknesses, injury prevention, and posture. Uh, we're going to talk about specific goals, uh, and how we can determine volume, intensity, frequency for those goals, how we can assess their current volume, intensity, and frequency before making new, uh, targets, estimating how far they can take that. What's their maximum recoverable volume, intensity, and frequency for that individual personally, um, and then choosing the volume total that you're actually going to be running with. Um, and then part two, what you're going to hear a lot about is exercise selection, sequencing throughout a session, sequencing throughout a week, uh, progression model and periodization, and then a lot of the finer details when it comes to program design, tempo, rest, supersetting, cardio, and aerobic work. Um, and uh, throughout this whole process, I'm going to be talking about different research studies. So I have a lot of different studies that I'm going to be talking about pulling up. And we're also going to link those in the description of the podcast. So as I refer to something on concurrent training or mobility or anything like that, and if I have a research study, it'll be in the show notes as well. Uh, so you guys will be able to go and see what I'm pulling my information from. Um, obviously, a lot of this goes into anecdotal tangents because research is research, but I have a lot of practical and applicable experience in the coaching game. So I'm going to be talking about a lot of my own experiences based on what I refer to in the research. So you're going to get a lot of combinations, which truly is evidence-based, right? So if we considered this, um, uh, if, if I'm thinking about a title right now, this could be uh, evidence-based programming and that's the series, right? This series uh, is evidence-based program design part one or whatever it is. I'll think of a better title when I can sit down and think about it for you guys. But uh, the point is evidence-based is not just reading research studies and spitting out uh, what the latest research study says the highest and most recoverable amount of volume is. It's about using research to dictate principles and, and give you methodical plans, but then adapting those plans to real world people, right? The experience of strength coaches is, is just as much evidence as scientific research because it's real world and you cannot perfectly create any study. Studies just give us principles and equations and formulas and hard facts that we can implement and use in our coaching to develop our experience over time. So that's really what evidence-based coaching is. So, so the first thing I wanted to bring up in this introduction of the podcast is just what we're trying to do here, right? We're trying to create different uh, series, right? I have a bunch of different things in mind. Uh, well, like I said before, productivity, stress management, how to get your brain working on another level, um, different nutrition topics, hormones, things like that. Uh, but I'm open to your feedback. So please leave us a question, click the, the description link and uh, give us your feedback on what you want us to talk about. Um, I also wanted to shout out what this specific series is about. Um, and then I have two quick uh, sponsor style announcements. The first one being that this is a program design podcast. If you want your programming needs solved for you, head over to tailoredtrainer.net and sign up for the app. It's less than a dollar a day. There is no long-term commitment and it has all of my best training programs. There is four day, there's three day, four day, five day, six day splits. There's conditioning, there's specialization up uh, uh, add-ons that you can add on a fifth day for specialization. There is uh Shit, female programs, male programs, strength-based programs, conditioning, metabolic-based programs. There is physique-based programs, quite a few of them. There's performance-based programs. There's a mixture of hybrid programs. Like There is so much in there that you can truly tailor the process to you, and that's what the Taylor Trainer is all about. So head over to taylortrainer.net, check that out, get the app right now, and get your training done for you. And finally, basically take me up, take me, roll me into a ball and shove me in your pocket because it is literally like having a personal trainer in your pocket. As weird as that sounds about putting me in your pocket – that's what this is about. It's putting as much of my exclusive coaching 
brain and thought process of programming into an app that is deliverable and easy to use and guides you throughout the gym process and gives you access to myself and team for help along the way. Um, that being said, the second sponsor I want to shout out is Giant. So if you need any of your equipment needs handled, whether you are a gym owner, whether you have a garage gym, whether you have a shop or a barn gym, or you're just training out of your kitchen or outside on your deck or whatever it may be, they really have everything you need. I actually just went over there the other day. I picked up a, a new sandbag, some wall mounts for my balls uh, and uh, my wall balls, jam balls, those kind of things, and then uh, my ropes. Um, what else did I get? I got some new speed jump ropes. I grabbed some plates. I thought this was interesting. I've never seen these before, but they have 15 pound plates, bumper plates. So now I got 10, I got fives, tens, 15s, 25s. I was stoked. I was like, this is sick. I've never seen these. Um, but I grabbed a bunch of plates, uh, grabbed the jump ropes, grabbed the sandbag, grabbed the mounts. Um, and I headed back, you know, so now I'm eyeing more stuff as we speak, but head over to giantlifting.com. They have everything you need. They have the best quality racks. They have the best dumbbells, plates, barbells. Um, I love the colorways of their barbells as well. Uh, and the best part is, is, is they, they actually are a reasonable price. Their shipping is cheaper and you can save 5% on top of the cheap shipping by using the code, uh, TCM five at your checkout. Uh, and now you can hook up your gym the way it should be. Now let's get in to this podcast today. Part one, assessing the client and setting the goal and timeline. So when we jump into this, the first thing that we need to talk about is goal setting in general, right? When we are assessing a client for programming um, or even assessing yourself, because maybe you're looking at this from a standpoint, and most of you probably are, uh, you know, you're looking at this like, how do I assess myself and my own needs and my own goals before I jump into something like the Taylor Trainer? Or maybe you're working with us on nutrition because this is a really, this is our probably most popular coaching package or combo is doing nutrition coaching and having that individualized attention, that personal coach, as well as jumping into the Taylor Trainer. So you can couple the private nutrition coaching, the exclusive one-on-one nutrition coaching with the Taylor Trainer. Uh, it allows you to do this, but what can you be doing to assess yourself and give your coach as much information before you jump into programming and figuring out what to do there, right? So first and foremost, specificity does matter. Um, and the reason I say this is because there's a few ways to look at this, right? Number one, a, a famous quote by Dan John, you got to keep the goal, the goal, right? Or no, the goal is to keep the goal, the goal. And it sounds very, very simple and, and uh, almost painfully obvious, right? But it's true. Too many people get sidetracked from the goal. I see this all the time with guys. I was talking to my neighbor about this. Every time he cuts, he feels small and then he starts trying to bulk again, right? But he's never as lean as he wants to be. And it's like, man, you got to see the goal out, right? And then he starts bulking and he, and he goes a little too aggressive maybe. And, and then he's like, fuck, now I want to cut. And it's only been a couple months. And I, I was, we had a really good conversation over the weekend. I was like, man, you really got to, you got to stick with it. You got to stay with the bulk. You got to do it slower so you can enjoy the gaining process. You'll still gain just, mu just as much muscle, but stick with it for longer. And then shift gears and stick with the cut longer, you get the most out of it, right? So keep the goal, the goal. Um, the other side of it is a lot of us have multiple goals. So how can we do this, right? And that's where concurrent training comes into play. And there's a lot of good research on concurrent training, but most of the research, and we've done a research review, so I'm going to link this in the description of the show notes. Uh, we've done a research review on concurrent training. 
uh, a podcast and a blog. I'm going to link the blog in there and that will link to the podcast as well if you'd rather listen. Um, but we, we reviewed a study on, uh, on concurrent training and I'll put the PubMed link in there and, it's, and the title of the study is Order of Same Day Concurrent Training Influences Some Indecisis of Power Development But Not Strength, Lean Mass, or Aerobic Fitness in Healthy, Moderately Active Men After Nine Weeks of Training. Um, and basically what that is is it did influence negatively uh, some power development, but it didn't impact negatively strength, lean mass, or aerobic fitness, right? So what does this mean? It means that we actually can get away with concurrent training. Once upon a time, a lot of people believed that we couldn't do two different goals at once. So now we know you actually can, right? So people would say, if you're trying to gain, you can't do any cardio, right? Well, right here's proof that you can, you know, and I think CrossFit, professional CrossFit individuals in the CrossFit games, I mean, if anybody's proof that you can do concurrent training, it's them. There's plenty of them that are jacked beyond belief. They have more muscle mass than some bodybuilders, yet they're doing a ton of aerobic fitness. They're doing a ton of cardio. Why? Because their sport dictates that they're good at all these different things, right? So the caveat here is specificity still does matter. If a CrossFit individual decided to quit CrossFit and start pursuing powerlifting, but if we look at their sport, they do some power lifts, right? They still got a squat. They still got a deadlift. I don't, they don't really bench much, but let's say they do every once in a while. Um, or they wanted to go into Olympic lifting. They do snatch, clean, jerk, all those things in CrossFit. However, they also do all these other things. So if a CrossFit individual decided to shift gears and pursue the sport of powerlifting or Olympic lifting, you can bet your bottom dollar that a, a smart coach would remove a lot of the other noise that they were doing because the sport of CrossFit is being great at concurrent training. It's being pretty damn good. Or I would say it would, it's, it's about being great at Olympic lifting, powerlifting, um, aerobic fitness, and a lot of muscular endurance-based work, right? Body weight, calisthenics, all those kind of things. Gymnastics. It's about being good at all these things. So in nature, it's literally about being the best concurrent athlete. However, if one of those individuals decided to go into powerlifting... I would uh, venture out to say the smartest move would be to remove a lot of the calisthenics, a lot of the gymnastics, a lot of the muscular endurance, and focus a lot more on powerlifting or on Olympic lifting if they chose that route. Because specificity still matters. If you have one primary goal, that needs to be the primary focus. And at least two-thirds of your work, of your volume, of the total stuff you are doing in the gym needs to be dedicated to that specific thing. Now, if your goal is something like CrossFit, where you equally want to get good at Olympic lifting, powerlifting, aerobic fitness, and gymnastics, then you need to equally spread all those things. You're going to see less leaps and bounds, so you're not going to see as much increases and as many PRs and as much growth in each of those individual things simultaneously, you'll see a lot slower progress across the board versus if you only dedicated your time to Olympic lifting, you would see a faster growth in Olympic lifting because your, your body, your nervous system and your mind, really your joints, everything, your, your physical and physiological being and your neurological being wouldn't be trying to get great at all these things. It doesn't have to create the skill patterns, the motor unit recruitment, all these different things, skill acquisition essentially on all these different things and spreading itself thin. So um, now this relates to goal setting because we have to first determine what does this person want? We now know that concurrent training is totally possible. And uh, by doing multiple things, you're not going to decrease uh, anything. So you're not going to regress in anything you're doing. You might progress much slower in each individual thing. However, you're progressing in all those things simultaneously. And to you, it's worth it if your goal is concurrent. If your goal is not concurrent, it's not the right route to go, right? So first and foremost, we have to talk to the client about what they want. What is your goal? If your goal is, is fat loss, 
we're going to consider that body composition change. If your goal is hypertrophy, we're going to consider that uh, body composition change. If your goal is strength, that's strength. If your goal is performance, that might be a mix between metabolic conditioning and uh, metabolic or aerobic conditioning, you could say, and strength, right? And if your goal is sport specific, then your goal is sport specific. Two thirds to three fourths, so about like 75%, let's say, of your training volume or work should be dedicated to that main goal, right? So if you come to us, if you come into the Taylor trainer, if you're, if you're assessing your goals right now and you can say that 75% of your goal, like your main goal is fat loss, but you still want to get a little stronger, then 75% of your training should be hypertrophy based. 25% of your training can be strength based. If you can say most of your goal is fat loss, but you still want to improve your aerobic fitness, 75% of your training should be bodybuilding. It should be physique-based. Whether you're on a fat loss or a muscle growth journey, you're going to be training for hypertrophy is the point. Uh, you're going to be training for muscle growth. You're going to be changing, tr- training for body composition change. 25% of your training should be dedicated to- towards aerobic fitness. Now, what if your main goal is fat loss? You want to get leaner. However, you value strength and you want to improve aerobic fitness. Ah, now we have three things right? And I could consider myself in this category. I want to slowly but surely get leaner over time. Like, I mean, of course, I'm not, I'm not on a muscle growth mission. I also don't want to be in a deficit. I just took myself out of a deficit right now, but I wouldn't mind getting leaner, right? I didn't get as lean as I wanted to be in this cut just because life's busy, life's hectic. I'm not going to make excuses. I pulled back and maybe I'll jump back into it in a, in a bit, but for now I'm just kind of sitting at maintenance and I think I could get a little bit leaner at maintenance, but my main goal, right? It, it might have be getting leaner long-term, aesthetics are my main goal. However, I want to see my back squat go up and I would like to improve my aerobic fitness because that's my weak point. Well, now 50% of my training should probably be bodybuilding focused. 25% should be focusing on strength, powerlifting, and my compound lifts. And then 25% should be on my aerobic fitness. So an example of how my training looks right now because of that, and that being the, the realistic case of what my goal is, is that 50% of my training is bodybuilding right? 50% of my training is accessory and isolation work. 25% is the bench squat, deadlift, and overhead press. And I would say a little bit of accessory works to boost those, right? I combine that bodybuilding and, uh, and strength accessory work, right? There's some times where I dip into the six to eight rep range, but I might be using more bodybuilding-based movements, but they're also aiding my compounds. You can kind of blur the line there. But the point is, is I have a very, very structured periodization cycle for my bench squat, deadlift, and overhead press because I want to improve those, those lifts. That's one of my main goals, but I also want to look better. So majority of my training goes to bodybuilding. And the truth is, is I don't enjoy aerobic fitness. I'm not the best at it. And especially with certain modalities, and you'll realize this too, is, is aerobic fitness is also a skill uh, aspect. So um, if you put me on a rower, I'll crush. If you put me on a sled, I do pretty damn good. If you put me on a salt bike, uh, I'm not the best. If you make me run, I'm horrible. So one of the things I'm focusing on is running, right? I'm an assault runner. I'm, I'm doing intervals after some days. I'm doing more conditioning days per week. I'm actually getting ready to start boxing again. So that's going to influence how I'm, how I'm setting this up. But the point is, is I have 25% of my, my training dedicated to one of my secondary goals. I have two secondary goals that are equally as important to me, aerobic fitness and strength. Then I have one goal that is always my overarching goal, and that is to look amazing. And that means bodybuilding is going to be my main component. So as you can see, concurrent, like the point with this is when we're setting goals for people, we don't, we no longer need to say as a coach, like, Hey, you can only focus on one thing. If your goal is body composition change, we are not doing anything else. If your goal is strength, we're not doing any aerobic fitness. If your goal is building muscle, we're not doing any of this other stuff. We just do the one thing. No, 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 no. 
not only will I, I, I've seen this quite often, not only will you get very bored of doing the same exact thing 100% of the time, but you will see better results, most likely with a little bit of concurrent training. This is why if you look at some of the strongest powerlifters in the world, Westside Conjugate Method, theirs, their system was technically a concurrent training method. They didn't just do powerlifting. If you look at some of the best bodybuilders of all time, they could also deadlift and bench press a lot of fucking weight. Why? Because they did singles and triples and five or less reps for some heavy sets at times. And if you look at some of the newer bodybuilders who are, are strictly bodybuilding, they also implement desensitization phases, which is just a fancy word for saying you got to throw a strength block in there. So they might spend 100% of their time doing rep ranges from 10 to 20 and focusing on a lot of isolation work, accessory work, and just doing bodybuilding training. But every 12 to 16 weeks, what do they do? They end up throwing in a four to eight week block of low reps, high intensity, low volume strength work to get stronger. They want to get stronger so that when they go back to the bodybuilding work, they can do heavier loads in those eight to 12 to 20 rep ranges, as well as desensitize their muscles and their nervous system to the type of volume they're throwing at it. And there's not a lot of research on this, but there's a good amount of anecdotal evidence that this works. Um, It takes patience, but there is a good amount of evidence that this works in the real world experience of coaches, as well as some limited research as to why this probably works pretty well. Uh, James Krieger wrote about it a little bit in the muscle uh, or the the volume Bible he wrote, I believe. But essentially what I'm saying here is the, the, the idea is that every quarter, let's say, you take the strength block. But if we look at that, that's about 25% of your year. Because if you do that every quarter, even if you just spend four weeks, by the end of the year, you spent a full three months, which is 25% of the year, doing strength work. Right, So this goes back to the idea is we can do one of two things. We can spend 100% of our time doing week to week doing bodybuilding high rep work and then or whatever our main focus is and then 25% of the year every once in a while throw in a block that is vastly different or we can just spend 75% of our week and day doing the same type of focus, one goal, and then implementing 25% of our time doing something different or 50, 25, 25 if you have uh, multiple focuses. But the point is, is the main focus does need to be chosen because specificity does matter. And unless you're a CrossFit competitive athlete, I don't think you can spread these perfectly even or else you'll be spinning your wheels. Um, And this is a good way of just breaking it up and understanding that, right? So now we understand, right? Concurrent training is possible. You're not going to regress. However, you're not also not going to become the best at any one thing by doing it. So we also need to understand that we got to divvy this up a little bit, like I just said. Now, the next part of this is setting a realistic timeline of the goal, right? What are you after? That's going to determine the timeline, right? So if we look at, uh, in this, in this, obviously this depends on the individual, this depends on their history. So this depends on a lot of things. So this isn't as easy as just saying, uh, 12 weeks, three months, boom, you're done. Because most people will say like, hey, let's, let's split it up into 12-week blocks, of course, but at the end of the day, you also need to be able to understand uh, progression week to week, month to month, so on and so forth, right? So if we look at fat loss, let's start there. If we look at fat loss, we can, we can say that you know there is a certain amount of time that we can look at when it comes to um, how, how far or how long uh, – it takes, right? So if we look at fat loss in general, we usually are looking at 0.5 to 1% of body weight loss per week. Um, and that minimizes any muscle and strength loss, right? And this is documented in research too. So this is a little bit more slow and sustainable. Um, and we have to remember it's relative to your body weight. So if you're 200 pounds, that is one to two pounds a week. If you are 150 pounds, that's 
three quarters over a pound to one and a half pounds a week, right? If you're even less, it's even less. So the lighter you are, literally the less weight you have to lose. So if you don't have much to lose, and this also, it, it matters too by how lean you are as well. So if you're, maybe you are 200 pounds, but you're also shredded, right? You have to think of this relative to your body weight as well as how much weight you have to lose. Uh, so some people who are very, very lean might lose 0.25 to 0.5 per week, and that's okay too. You just have to be okay with the trend going down, period. But the point with this is simple. If we know that it's 0.5% of body weight loss per week, we can then say and determine how long this, this timeline is going to take. And we should have this kind of expectation in the forefront, right? So uh, if we look at a rate of gain, it's a little bit different. So from fat loss, 0.5% of um, weight loss per week. Uh, and that's going to lead to a healthy and sustainable weight loss without losing muscle and uh, performance in the gym. And it's also going to help minimize metabolic adaptation, hormonal adaptation, and it's going to keep biofeedback and health on the higher spectrum of things. Anytime you're in a deficit, you are going to experience some kind of adaptations. It's something we just need to be aware of. However, this can mitigate as much as possible. Now, when we consider rate of gain, we tend to look at this on a monthly basis just because you know, with gaining, it's, it's hard to explain why. Sometimes it's uh, glycogen stores. Sometimes it's just body being stubborn. Um, sometimes uh, training can affect this as well as far as like DOMS and recoverability and supercompensation, um, which there's limited data on. So we can't be 100% sure, but we just you just kind of got to trust the experience on this one. Uh, but it can go in waves. You know, I've seen people do this. I've done this myself too, where you push for uh, weight gain and you see this huge gain the first couple of weeks and then it goes super slow or we see it to where it's just like not happening at all. And then all of a sudden it clicks into gears and it goes. And then we have other people that just gain at a perfect rate, right? So if you're a beginner, this is typically an beginner, intermediate, advanced, that shouldn't determine how uh, the rate of loss changes that I just went over, just so you guys know. Uh, your body weight and how much weight you have to lose before you're shredded, that's going to determine the differences in the rate of loss. Um, now, for gaining muscle, it's different because the more advanced you are, the harder it is to put on muscle. Your body has gotten good at it. Your body has kind of squeezed out as much of its natural mu muscular potential, genetic potential as it can. And the closer you get to that ceiling, which we don't even know if it's ever possible. I don't think it's ever possible to reach a ceiling. I would say that there's a point in time where there's a threshold where it slows down considerably more than anything. Um, and this is going to be 1 to 1.5 percent of total body weight per month uh, for a beginner. So for example, if we look at uh, the 200 pound individual, if they're trying to gain muscle, because um, let's be more realistic, let's say 150 pound individual, um, one to 1.5 percent is going to be uh, 1.5 pounds to, uh, I have to do this math, 2.25 pounds. I don't know why I had to do that math per month. So at the higher end, you're, you're gaining a half a pound a week right? And on the lower end, you're gaining a third of a pound, 0.375. So almost not even a half pound a week. So as you can see, you could gain a quarter of a pound up to a pound a week based on this, right? Essentially. And that's a beginner, right? A half a pound a week as a beginner. As an intermediate, that's 0.5 to 1% of total body weight gained per month. And as an advanced individual, 0.5% of body weight per month. And this is proper weight gain to stay lean, right? You can gain faster than this. Some people promote gaining faster than this. And there's viable reasons why you maybe should. There's a debate in the industry against uh, lean gaining versus bulking, essentially. 
I personally am on the side in the favor of lean gaining based on how I like to live my life, the way I like to consistently look, the way I like to see definition of my body, the way I feel most confident, and the fact that I'm not impatient, right? This is this is a long-term game for me, and I understand that. I also know a lot of our clientele, they jump into muscle gaining phases because they want to look leaner, uh, or they just simply don't want to gain fat. So we typically don't go the dirty bulk route, but there are also people who need to bulk faster because mentally they won't have the motive to do it slow. There's just more ups and downs, and I don't think it's as uh, productive long-term. I think by the end of the year, you would get further doing a slow lean gain with less cuts than you would doing cuts in bulks. And I also think it's healthier for you as well. Um, you know, but you got to also remember too, like if you're a beginner and you're trying to gain this one to 1.5% of body weight per month, you also have to understand that you should be able to progress most of your training loads in the gym on a weekly basis. So if you're a beginner and you're gaining muscle, you're probably adding weight or adding volume or doing something every single week. Every week you step in the gym, you're doing better, you're doing more, you're improving, you're progressively overloading. As an intermediate, you're, it's a little bit less. Um, so you, I would say biweekly or monthly. Every couple weeks, every two to four weeks, you see yourself adding load to the bar, you add reps, so on and so forth. Um, and if you're an advanced individual, progress is really only evident after months and months, if not a year of, of training. And I think this actually, this, this can be good context for a lot of you guys because there's times where even I thought I was an advanced individual, but I look at it and it's like, actually, I can progress on a biweekly basis, so I'm still not truly advanced. I think that a truly advanced individual is at least a decade into it, if not two. And I know that seems like a long time. I'm over a decade into it and I'm still progressing more than every several months. So I know for me, if I get very serious and I'm on a very structured periodization plan, I can progress on a lot of what I'm doing every two to three weeks. And that still makes me an intermediate slash advanced individual. I'm advanced from a skill component, but my body genetically and physiologically speaking is probably still in that physiological range where I can change more frequently. Um, but those are, those are the rates of gain that we want to lose. Um, if we consider females, it just slows down a little bit. Um, it's, it's, it's very similar um, to, you know, to gaining uh, muscle. And this, obviously, there's a lot of nutrition that is involved here. We're not going to dive into nutrition today. You can check out all the nutrition podcasts we do on that. Um, for females, you're probably going to go to the lower end of all these, right? So uh, if it's 1% to 1.5% of total body weight per month, you're probably going to be in that 1% closer to that 1%, maybe a little bit less. Same thing with the next one and the next one, the categories. Um, okay, realistic timeline for that. How long will it take? That's basically the gist of it, right? And what are you tracking is the last thing. So if we look at this, uh, the metrics uh, for gaining and losing fat or muscle is pretty simple. Track your weight, track your measurements, track your li lifts in the gym, track your progress pictures, track those things so that you can see the progress being made visually, aesthetically, and from a, a girth measurement perspective, and obviously progress in the gym because if you're progressively overloading your, your uh, intensity and volume with bodybuilding programming, you're probably gaining muscle. You kind of have to, to gain muscle in order to do that, especially if you're progressively overloading in the eight to 10 rep range, let's say. Um, that being said, for metrics for performance, it's a totally different ballgame. If you are a power lifter, we're looking at the bench squat deadlift. If you are a Olympic lifter, we're looking at the uh, front squat, clean and squat, clean and jerk, those kind of things. If you are an aerobic athlete, are you running marathons, half marathons? Are you doing sprint triathlons? Are you doing like a 2K row time? What are you doing, right? So for me, um, it's a mile time. It's a 2K row time. It's, it's a 10-minute AMRAP uh, for calories on the assault bike, but at a more sustainable pace. So there's different things like that because I'm trying to work my aerobic system. So I'm looking at aerobic measurements that are non-competitive because I'm not competing in any type of aerobic event. I'm just doing it for my own health and performance. Um, now, the timeline for that is 
different for everybody. The performance one, it's hard to dictate a timeline because it depends on what their commitment level it is. It depends on what they're doing prior, but you can give them a rough, a rough estimate, right? Uh, usually we're looking at 12 to 16 weeks to see a meaningful change in performance. And if you lay out a pro- program properly, uh, that's why most of the programs in the, the Tao Trainer, the app actually only lets us build each phase up to 12 weeks. But if you look at it, everything is at least 12 weeks long. There's a couple programs that are eight weeks long and it's because they're specialization programs or the latest program we just uh, created in there, which is the foundations program, which is completely just to get a beginner to build their foundation, establish a base point. And then uh, everything else is 12 weeks with a phase two at times, which means it's 24 weeks. So three to six months is a good period of time when we consider performance improvements in the gym. And that's something that you should lay out for an individual or lay out for yourself. Like I'm setting this target. I'm going to test every two to three months and I'm going to attack this for six months. Right. And if you hit it sooner, great. Um, And you also have to set a base point. So if if your goals are metric based, you have to start with the metric at hand and then see where you're at. Um, you know, so a good example of this, like I said, if I'm doing a 2k row, a one mile and a 10 minute, guess what? Before I even start a periodized conditioning program to uh, improve those things, it's week one or week zero technically is testing those. I got to find my, my starting point, right? What's my base point right now so I can improve it throughout the next 12 weeks. Um, same thing with the big lifts, like test your, your maxes. I set a goal. It's actually very ironic because I set a random goal. Me and my brother-in-law were lifting on Monday and I was like, yeah, one of my main goals has been to squat 315 ass to grass. And he was like, dude, you can do that. I've seen you squat uh, 365 for one. And I was like, I know, but it was shitty form. I didn't have full depth. Like it was just a grinder. I hurt my back a little bit. And this is, you know, I've had two knee surgeries, three, uh, two meniscus tears, one ACL tear, poor recovery on one side. Um, I had a partially torn meniscus for five years before it ripped all the way. So I was training, uh, dysfunctionally, which created a whole bunch of dysfunction in my hip, my ankle, my knee, like just all kinds of stuff. Right. And, uh, but he, he was saying that to me and I was like, Fuck, well, I don't know, man. I haven't, I haven't put 350 on the bar and tried to squat ass grass. So what did I do the next day by myself on a Tuesday? Put 315 on the bar. I squatted three for three reps of uh, three sets of three. Asked to grass, felt great, looked great. Posted on Instagram. People said it looked good. I was I was pumped, but that was my starting metric. And now I'm like, okay, well now I know I can do that. So what do I really want to strive to squat for three reps? Asked to grass in three to six months. Right now I have a new baseline. So you have to have that testing ground. And then with uh, the, the literal time to lose or gain weight, we know what the rates of gaining and losing are now, right? 0.5 to 1% of total body weight loss per week. And then depending if you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, we're going to be anywhere between 0.5 to 1.5%. And an advanced individual, it's up to one point, or it's, I'm sorry, an advanced individual is up to 0.5. Most of the people listening to this are truly beginners and intermediates. Even those of you listening who feel like you're advanced, you're most likely advanced from a skill perspective, but you're probably not advanced from a physiological perspective to where your body is done changing. And I say that uh, humbly because that's me as well. I am advanced from a skill and an understanding and information perspective, but probably not from a physiological perspective. My body is still ready to change. So we know that anywhere between uh, up to 0.5, but most likely 0.5 to 1.5% of total body weight uh, gained per month for a rate of gain, and we know that it's 0.5 to 1% total body weight loss per week for fat loss, um, now we know how long it will take based on what they want to lose. Now, a lot of times people have misconstrued guidelines or ideas of what they want to achieve from a fat loss perspective, and, and that's something you need to cover as well in this assessment phase. So if I go to somebody and ask them, what do you want to lose? You know, this happens very commonly. 
I get women who bring up a weight that they once were. And it's incorrect now. So they used to weigh 135 pounds and they just want to accomplish that 135 pound goal again. However, that was five years ago. Since then, they've done CrossFit. They shifted to functional bodybuilding. Now they're training with us. They've ate well. They've had kids. They've done all these things. Physiological changes has happened. But not only that, they've been training for five years and they haven't been dieting. They haven't been losing weight because they've been a little overweight. Well, guess what? What, what happens when you have a little bit of extra body fat on your body and you're, you're consuming more calories than needed to lose weight, so you're not in a deficit. You're either at least at maintenance, if not in a surplus, you are primed to build muscle. And if you stayed in that prime muscle growth zone for five years, especially as a more of a beginner, because after you were that weight, you jumped into this kind of stuff, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be 135 pounds anymore. You would be just as lean as you were at 135 pounds, but you'll be at least five pounds based on what we know about muscle growth, right? And you might even be leaner than you were at 135 pounds with that five pounds. So we have to consider that half the people have an unrealistic goal perspective from a point of... I need to get back to this weight. However, they forget they've built muscle and things have changed. They're not going to be that weight again. They're going to be heavier than that, but probably look leaner than that. And explaining the science behind that is important to these individuals. Or for you people listening, take my word for it. I've worked with thousands of people that have been through this. And then the other side of it is people, even like myself, where I'm like, I could probably lose 10 pounds and I'd be shredded. And then I lose 20 pounds and I'm finally shredded. So there's a lot of times where we underestimate how much body fat we actually have and we can lose more. And I've seen this just because I've done photo shoots and I'm always, I always get lighter than I thought I was going to strive for. So knowing that if I do what I think I should lose and it will take me 10 weeks to get there based on these 0.5 to 1% calculations for fat loss or in the reverse muscle growth, it'll take me 12 weeks. I'm going to say, let's do 16 weeks. I literally always suggest people add a month, add four weeks to your timeline. And then if you want to implement diet breaks and refeeds, number one, if you have one day, single day or double day refeeds every once in a while, that extra four weeks kind of counters that in. But if you're taking longer diet breaks, we have to consider that as well. So now this timeline could uh, multiply by 0.5 all the way to double what it was, right? So if we have a 12-week timeline to lose weight, but I want to take week-long diet breaks every four to six weeks, I need to make this 16 to 20 weeks long, not 12 to 16. And then on top of that, if I want to do a six to eight week cut followed by a three to four week diet break, which I think would be more beneficial, be really aggressive, get after it for six to eight weeks, take a longer diet break at maintenance, repeat to it. Now I'm going 24 to 36 weeks because I'm spending almost a full month, if not a full month in a diet break. So with the timeline, we have to factor this into multiple things, right? We have to basically break this down into how long will it literally take to get to this goal if we just went straight there and we took no breaks and we just drove right at it and we had full consistency and adherence. Then we have to implement factors like falling off the wagon, um, social events, blah, 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 blah. And then on top of that, we have to actually implement periodized and planned diet breaks that could influence the length of this timeline. And now we have a rate of, of loss that's going to work. Rate of gain is how long will this person last by uh, slowly but surely gaining weight, which we should also include those metrics for performance because if you don't, they're going to get bored because weight gain at a positive level is going to be very, very slow. If you go too fast, it's exciting because you're gaining fast. And then all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you realize you're too fluffy and you're, you're actually really upset. And then you cut prematurely. You mess up some of the gains you were seeing because you didn't stay in it long enough, so on and so forth, which is why we typically recommend a slower gaining process. But it can be monotonous. It can be boring. And for people that would find that boring, what they need to do is make sure that they have these metrics pointed out, even if it's an eight rep front squat and an eight rep dumbbell bench press, a 10 rep wide grip pull down. It doesn't matter. Have these metric base lifts that you're trying to improve so you can see proof I am gaining size. 
right? I'm gaining muscle. And then have specific clothes that are going to tighten in the places you want to tighten. So I have certain shirts, for example, that fit good. They're looser, but they're tight around the arms. And when I get bigger and I build muscle, they're fucking like a, a, a blood pressure cuff on my biceps. And I'm like, yes, things are working. Obviously we get compliments as well, but if, if you're, and if you're a female and you're, you're approaching a muscle growth phase and a lot of women, they want to improve their shoulders, upper back, their, their hamstrings and their glutes. Try to find like shirts that you can wear that show your upper back and shoulder. And you can see if they're improving, try to find those yoga pants that fit a little bit snug on your glutes. And if they, if you max those out, you're growing your glutes, you're doing the right thing. Um, so noticing those things. Okay. So this is definitely going to be a three part at least podcast. So, um, I should have known better. This is, I have uh, the title at the top of the show notes for Travis when he's editing, it says program design series, 15 to 20 minutes per episode. Well, we're 40 minutes in and I've gotten through a of part one, which is goal setting. And there's mind you, a, B, C, D, uh, just for assessment. And then we go into determining volume, intensity, frequency, which is A, B, C, D as well. So we're going to keep this to a four part series. Uh, this is going to be start part one, assessing the client. I've already gone through goal setting in pretty damn uh, a lot of depth. Let's just say that. Um, now I want to, I want to give a, a quick call to action. Shout out. Remember guys, the Taylor trainer is all this is done for you. So going through this podcast, if you're, if you're taking notes, if you're deciding your goals, if you're figuring things out and you're like, okay, now I know what I'm after, but I need help actually putting it into action. That is literally what the Taylor trainer is for. Shoot me an email, Cody at tailoredcoachingmethod.com if you have questions or just sign up for the app and message me in the app and I can help guide you on what you need to do. All right, next we got to understand mobility versus flexibility. So these next few things are pretty easy when it comes to assessment. Um, mobility and flexibility, there's a few things here to understand. Um, there's, first and foremost, we have to go through uh, stretching, right? There's static and there's dynamic. Um, and there's a lot of good research on here. The one I'm going to link in the show notes is called The Effect of a Dynamic Warm-Up Stretch Protocol on 20-Meter Sprint Performance in Trained Rugby Union Players. Um, and essentially what they found, it, it, they concluded that static stretching uh, as part of a warm-up will actually decrease short sprint performance, whereas active dynamic stretching seems to increase 20-minute sprint performance. Um, so if we have three groups, one does static stretching, one does dynamic stretching, and one doesn't do any stretching. The dynamic stretching group improves performance. The control group, which did nothing, didn't improve anything. Um, they just stayed still. And then the, the static stretching group decreased performance. We also have seen this in... Um, uh, strength training as well. So we've seen power and strength development inside of strength and powerlifting decrease with static stretching, increase with dynamic warm-up, and it's going to apply to bodybuilding as well. It's going to apply to CrossFit. And the reason we want to understand this is because, um, you know, and this is nothing against like ROMWOD and stuff like that, but you see a lot of people jumping on ROMWOD pre-workout. And a lot of times what we see in ROMWOD is not dynamic. It's a lot of static holds. And this is actually going to decrease your performance. Now, I like ROMWOD. I like ROMWOD. I like GoWOD. I like all those things. But I like them better as a standalone at a separate point in time, as well as a uh, post-workout uh, cool down or stretching component to improve um, recoverability, improve flexibility, actually increase muscle growth, things like that. So um, if you are uh, going through an assessment, and this is what we're talking about here, if you're assessing a client and they lack flexibility, the last thing I'm going to do is have them stretching their hip flexors and lats and, and hamstrings uh, in static positions pre-workout. It's going to make them worse and your performance is going to go down. And part of the reason for that is it's 
it's creating a progressive stimulus on them. They are not flexible. So stretching their muscle is literally breaking down muscle tissue. It's going to decrease performance. It's also something that is probably more parasympathetic than sympathetic. It's, it's kind of like holding and relaxed. Why yoga can be calming for some people. You're not going to do good strength training after that. So what we want to do is dynamic stretching. So when we assess somebody, we got to look for where their uh, mobility and flexibility is, right? So looking at how immobile they are in places and how uh, inflexible they are in places. And then we're going to create a dynamic warm up to improve the mobility of that individual going into a session. And we're going to create a static uh, stretching routine if needed to improve flexibility, but it's going to be used post-workout or it's going to be used at a completely separate time of day. For example, I often do my static stretching while watching Netflix late at night. I'm not training anymore. I'm going to go to bed afterwards. I don't train for another almost 24 hours because I train at 3, 3.30 p.m. every day. So that's a safe time to do it and it's going to increase my flexibility. Increased flexibility is going to improve my skill in the gym because it's going to increase my range of motion, which is going to help me recruit more muscle fibers, create more damage to the tissue. Um, it's going to emphasize a full stretch shortening cycle on every single rep. At the end of the day, I'm going to build more muscle, um, change my body composition, improve strength better because of it. I'm also probably going to reduce injuries. Um, now the next part about this is looking at FMS, functional movement screen. A lot of trainers know what this is. Uh, we have a dumbed down version of this and I do think it's important. Um, but the, but there was a cool study on it that actually kind of surprised me to be honest with you. And it's, and it's a, it's a meta-analysis, so a meta-analysis, which means it actually pulled a whole bunch of studies together for this. Um, and the title is do functional movement screens, uh, composite scores predict. So functional movement screen composite score is basically like your ranking from this uh, FMS screen. Um, so does the FMS uh, composite scores predict subsequent injury? Uh, systematic review with meta-analysis. So basically they looked at things to see um, does doing a functional movement screen prior and having a high score reduce the injury risk? And uh, the strength of association between FMS composite scores and subsequent injury does not support its use as an injury prevention tool. Um, uh, injury prediction tool. So what that tells us is that, you know, FMS isn't our saving grace. Movement screens aren't going to predict a ton. It's not going to prevent a lot of injuries. However, it can allow us to uh, improve our specificity within the program. So we use a, a, some kind of movement screen more so to see where they're lacking mobility and flexibility so that we can implement mobility and flexibility. Uh, but unless you do the right and consistent amounts of mobility work and flexibility and do consistent dynamic warmups prior to training, it's not going to do anything for you, right? The other reason we use this is because I want to see what their limb lengths are. I want to see where their imbalances are. There's going to be certain things with joints that are in positions that cannot be fixed for the most part, because if somebody's 40 years old and they have a very kyphotic posture, there's going to be rounding and morphing in the skeleton uh, of this individual that we can't change. You know, I've had uh, kids, uh, youth athletes, when I was a trainer in the gym that were 10 to 15 years old and they had bad posture and I could change them because they were still malleable. But as older individuals, 30, 40, 50, 60, we're not malleable anymore. So some of these can't be trained. So by doing a movement screen, we're going to be able to see their limb length so we can determine better exercise selection for them. Because let's be honest, uh, you know, a squat for a seven foot volleyball player, which I have trained before, um, as well as a seven, one rugby professional rugby player, their, their technique and their form and their exercise selection is different than my client. Who's five, two doing a squat, right? It's just different because they have different mechanics, different limb lengths, different torso lengths. Um, we got to play around with things. So we're looking at those kind of things. Now, 
one thing to remember as well, maybe you don't like static stretching, maybe you're not highly inflexible, uh, maybe you don't have any pain associated with flexibility, uh, maybe you don't have any trouble achieving a full range of motion, you don't need to do static stretching. There's no study proving that static stretching is absolutely needed. In fact, resistance training is literally static stretching, if we consider it. Um, You are going, for example, an RDL. An RDL is a high hip placed movement where you're going into a deep hamstring stretch while loading the movement. So there was actually a study, a systematic review, and it's called Strength Training Versus Stretching for Improving Range of Motion, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And they went through a whole bunch of different stuff. That's what a a systematic review and meta-analysis is. Um, Unfortunately, you won't be able to see the full text on this one. Um, But what they essentially came up with is that resistance training, strength training, and stretching were not that different right, in their effects of increasing range of motion. Uh, But the studies were highlighted uh, uh, specifically, so they looked at uh, the the individuality of um, the design, the protocols, populations, all these different different things inside the study. Um, And further research is is needed, is basically what they conducted. Uh, However, uh, they also said, and I quote, the qualitative effects of all the studies were quite homogenous. So what this tells us is that essentially it's all the same, right? So they didn't see a significant difference in uh, static stretching versus resistance training. If individuals are practicing a full range of motion control and they're loading the movements properly, they see an improvement in flexibility. So sometimes if somebody doesn't have a ton of time to be in the gym, if somebody doesn't like stretching, what you can also do is simply encourage practice and teach full range of motion with proper form control intention because that improves flexibility in individuals um so we know we don't need to worry about that um you know and the last thing i put in this section of mobility and flexibility in terms of assessing an individual at the beginning um and and the the prephases into program design is foam rolling uh and, and whether or not that's important there's been a lot of debate and talk over this. Uh, there's one study I'm going to link in the show notes, and it's called Higher Quadriceps Roller Massage Forces Do Not Amplify Range of Motion Increases Nor Impair Strength and Jump Performance. So uh, we know that it, you know, there was talk that uh, it actually decreases stuff like static stretching because it relaxes. We know that's not true. Um, we also know that it doesn't uh, necessarily amplify range of motion, but there is a little bit of evidence that it can be uh, efficient. Uh, it, it can be used as an efficient way to increase range of motion without substantial pain and without substantial performance impairments. So basically what they concluded with is it's not making a huge difference, but this as well as other research studies show a temporary and an acute increase in range of motion. So what this means is it doesn't necessarily improve your range of motion long-term. So this idea of rolling out a muscle and getting rid of the knots and allowing your muscle to be more elastic, um, it's just not true. It's a temporary effect. So it can be helpful. So using the Thuragun, using uh, a lacrosse ball, using a foam roller at the beginning of your your warm-up before a training session, it can improve your range of motion uh, during that session. But any knots you have, any tightness, you're probably going to see those things come back. Um, It's not a long-term solution. However, there's not long enough research studies to show if it does anything long-term when consistently done. So if you're doing this formula every single day, you're strength training every week, like there's no reason for us to believe that it won't improve flexibility and range of motion long-term. So I think it's worth throwing in there. Uh, For me personally, I go to a sport physio every other week. We do adjustments. She does ART. So it's uh, 
basically foam rolling on steroids. Uh, I try to get a massage every couple months, if not once a month. Um, it's just about my schedule. Um, and I try to foam roll briefly before my workouts. And this is just a, a way to keep my body consistently improving, hopefully crossing my fingers and doing it pre-workout just to make sure that during that session, I am more uh, likely to be able to have a full range of motion in the movements that I'm performing in that given training session. Um, there's a few other things, you know, uh, instability and weaknesses, for example. Um, and, and the main thing here is we want to work on what's weak first in a session and prioritize volume there during the week. Uh, and this is going to come from the FMS. It's from seeing things. It's from asking questions in the questionnaire. It's from seeing them lift. Um, even if you see somebody squat, if you see somebody um, squat and they have knee valgus, so their knees kind of cave in, well, we can pinpoint that because it's usually during the concentric and it's usually because of weak adductors and or hip external rotators. So now we know we need to work on hip adduction. We need to maybe work on tissue quality in the glute med and as well as the adductors, the inner thigh. Um, we also probably need to work on some knee stability movements, which is also going to work that external rotator and that adductor simultaneously because it's creating stability and a balance between the two, internal external rotation. Um, and it's also going to uh, help to do literally hip abductions and things like that. Things working on hip external rotation so you can create more tension and force at the bottom of that squat so when you go into the concentric portion of the squat, you rip out. Um, another example is the bench press. If somebody struggles with uh, the lockout at the top, we can pinpoint that weakness as uh, triceps because triceps help the elbow, elbows extend. Um, if they have a weak bottom half, it's probably a weak pec, uh, maybe lat trap because a lot of stability at the bottom of the rep and, and just stability of holding the barbell properly, um, but probably more pec than tricep if it's the bottom range of motion. And you can pinpoint specific exercises um, to improve those, right? So we can do those at the beginning of session or we can just simply prioritize volume there. So we do more volume in the ranges of motion that affect it. So if somebody's goal is to build their bench press um, or their goal is bodybuilding and they want to improve their aesthetic, but their bench press is weak. Well, we know it's going to kill two birds, one stone. We know that their strength's going to improve. So if that's their goal, great. We know that their bodybuilding is going to improve because they're going to be able to load it more effectively and recruit muscles, fibers better because the muscle stays active throughout the full range, which basically means we need to work on the end range. So maybe we're doing flies. Maybe we're doing uh, holds at the bottom of those flies. Maybe we're doing isometrics. Maybe we're doing deficit pushups, wide grip presses, things like that. Um, if it's a deadlift, and they struggle right off the floor, then we know that we probably need to work on um, in that bottom range, right? RDLs, we need to work on uh, deficit RDLs. We need to work on flexibility. Um, if it's the lockout at the top, we probably need to do rack pulls because we need to work on the top end. But knowing their instabilities and weaknesses are going to allow us to program better warm-ups, better mobility, and better specific exercises in order to improve those weaknesses to focus on the goals that they have in hand. Um, and then the last part of this, this assessment thing is injury prevention and posture. So number one is understanding RPE versus failure. And this is more to give guidelines, right? So if we're trying to, um, number one, improve posture, we know that with the mobility and flexibility with FMS, we're going to be able to see where they're at. So similar to the instability and weakness, posture is that way. So if somebody has uh, kyphotic shoulders, rolled forward, protracted shoulder blades, 
and they're hunched forward. We know that we need to work their rotator cuff, their traps, their rear delts, probably their lats, everything in the posterior chain. This is where that two to one ratio or that three to one ratio of pull to push is going to come in. I'm going to do two to three times as many pulling and upper back movements as I am pressing movements for now until we get you in a better posture. I'm also probably going to stretch your pecs. I'm probably going to stretch your lats because you're doing a lot more lat work. And I'm going to work uh, shoulder stability and scapular uh, mobility. Um, and that comes from goal setting, right? Same thing with hip flexors. If somebody sits all the time as tight, hip flexors and they have back pain because of it, I'm probably going to work their glutes more, their hamstrings more, and I'm going to do mobility for their hips, stretch their hip flexors, so on and so forth. Now with um, injury prevention, it, the biggest thing is coming from understanding intensities that need to be used in the gym. And this is assessing somebody's ability to understand those intensities and then teaching them how to better articulate how hard they need to go. Um, and the best way to do this is do AMRAP tests, you know, um, doing something like put your body weight on a trap bar, do as many reps as you can unbroken. Um, it's doing one minute bench press at 65%, how many reps can you get? Whatever it may be, it's doing a test of AMRAP because the injury risk is lower and we're trying to just test their level of intensity, right? And we can also say like, hey, I want you to put your 10 rep max on the bar and you're gonna go to failure, right? And we'll see where they go. If they put 10 rep max on the bar and they did this in a study on RPE um, and the I, I will try to find this to link in the, in the show notes, but um, I didn't have this one written down, but I've used it many times before in the podcast. Um, I, they, they did this and they had however many participants. The highest rep count was 26. The lowest was 12, I think. And then the, the average was 16. But everybody put their 10 rep max on the bar for a bench press. And they had a, a spotter there that pushed them to absolute failure. And all of them superseded 10 reps. The 12 rep run, I understand, right? You finally have a spotter and you hit a couple reps. 16 on average is pretty high. 26 is insane. So it just goes to show that we typically underestimate our RPE, our rate of perceived exertion. Um, so doing some tests like this, put your 10 rep max on this, do your 10 rep max on this, and then record your weights on that first week to determine where they're at so you can show them physically you can go further than you realize unless th this was actually an RPE blank, right? Um, and if your RPE, uh, if you hit 15 with this weight, that means this is your, your RPE 10 for 15, which means your RPE 10 for 10 is probably about this weight. And you can kind of customize it and give them more confidence going into the load. Um, but something to understand too is, is uh, one thing I wanted to pull up is, is a study on injury. Um, and this one is called Prevalence and Consequences of Injuries in Powerlifting, a cross-sectional study. And essentially what they did is they uh, they had 53 females and 51 males, and this is, these are Swedish uh, powerlifters, um, that they studied, answered questionnaires, they basically participated in this. Um, and it's pretty crazy, but 70%, uh, 73 of the 104 participants uh, were currently injured. 87% had experienced an injury within the past 12 months. Um, this is insane. And women actually experience a significantly greater frequency of injuries in the neck and thoracic region than men, um, which this is just comes down to anatomy. Uh, the bone structure of male and females are just slightly different. Uh, but the point is, 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 you know, it is extremely high percentage of people, 70% of people were currently injured when they did the study and they just pulled random power lifters, half men, half women, and 87% have uh, experienced an injury in the past 12 months. Um, and what they concluded was that injuries are very common in sub-elite power lifters. So these are not professional power lifters, sub-elite uh, recreational competitive power lifters. 
Men and women report similar injury frequencies, but different anatomical locations. Makes sense. These injuries do not prevent powerlifters from training and competing, but they may change the content of training sessions. Why powerlifters develop injuries is still unclear. However, it is likely that the management of training loads and optimization of the lifting technique during the squat, bench, and deadlift are of importance. Um, and, and mass research review reviewed this, and what they found is what they concluded to is basically that training in maximal ranges is just more predictive of injuries, right? And, and this leads us right to um, the study on failure training. And this one's called resistance training performed to failure or not to failure results in similar total volume, but with different fatigue and discomfort levels. And basically what they found here was that uh, controlling uh, movement velocity and non-failure uh, enabled performance of a similar total volume of repetitions uh, and uh, then the maximum failure protocol, except the maximum failure protocol, the going to failure just increased neurological systematic fatigue, systemic global fatigue, which meant it was harder for them to get back in the gym, um, which also based on this powerlifting study tells us that injury risk is a little bit higher. So when we're going through this part of the assessment, it's, it's assessing an individual's understanding of RPE and intensity, and then educating them on where they should be. Typical RPE is going to be anywhere between seven to nine most of the times. This means we have one to three reps left in the tank. This is not going to failure. Now, if you want to go to failure on a band pull apart, on a glute hip abduction on a curl on a lateral raise every once in a while that's fine injury risks are much lower but when we consider going to failure on squat bench deadlift barbell hip thrusts rdls bulgarian split squats bigger movement patterns that can create more damage to the tissue to the joint um, to systemic fatigue we need to drop that intensity because what happens is set for set, you can accomplish the same amount of total volume and tension to the muscle by staying in that seven to nine RPE range um, over the course of sets. When we go to failure, we fatigue quicker and we actually lower our volume throughout the, the sets or the whole entire session anyway. So weekly total volume ends up being exactly the same, right? We leave some in the tank so that we have more in the tank for later in the session, or we go balls to the wall and we don't have as much in the tank later. Our perception, they found this in another study, the perception of effort is higher. So if you really, really believe in the placebo effect, maybe there's an excuse for uh, going to failure, but I wouldn't bet on that too much. But essentially, the, the perceived, uh, the perce perception of effort and the perception of success is higher in those who do go to failure. So what this means is you really, really got to look into the research. And I would highly suggest everybody research the what they have found on RPE. Because for you to fully buy in on this idea, it will take information and knowledge and, and hopefully me telling you, but if, if you need more, go research it because what they find is that people who do go to failure do tend to feel like they're going to get better results. They feel like they're putting in more effort. So there might be a motivation factor there. And this is why I do take some exercises to basically to failure and they're very safe and effective exercise to go there, but everything else should stay at seven to eight RPE because what they find is anything from seven to 10. So basically leaving three reps in the tank to 10 or to, to no reps in the tank is going to have a, a very, very similar, so similar that they can't even pinpoint a difference uh, in effect of muscle growth and effect of positive change, neurological adaptation. And we're able to recover better and do more long-term, which is probably why results tend to be better when we leave a few in the tank. So if you can uh, assess where you're at with understanding RPE, and then you can program everything to stay in that seven to nine RPE range, only go to 10 RPE or failure, zero RIR reps in reserve when it's necessary and safe, because it's a very simple, sim like simple, low injury risk exercise, like an inverted row or a lateral raise, something like that. Then I think you're going to program perfectly. That's what we do in the Taylor trainer. Everything is programmed that way. And everything uses RPE for that reason. Um, but I wanted to point this out at the beginning because I think it's important to understand um, 
number one, powerlifters are a great example. They have to train at maximal efforts because that's their job. It's to go to max, but it shows how common injuries are when we tiptoe beyond that 90% of max effort, uh, intensity or that RPE nine to 10 all the fucking time. Um, and how the other research shows we can get just as great of results, but probably recover better and have less injuries. If we keep RPE seven, eight, nine as the majority of our training. So we're not, we're kind of avoiding going to failure all the time to avoid injuries, avoid burnout and avoid, uh, too much global systemic fatigue. Um, which basically just means joint, muscular, skeletal, neurological, like fatigue across the whole system. Um, all right, guys. So we covered a lot today. This is uh, part one of the program design series. This is assessing the client and setting the goal. We went over goal setting. We went over timelines. We went over mobility. We went over flexibility. We covered instability and weaknesses briefly. And then we finished with uh, injury prevention as well as RPE and efforts in the gym. I think we covered a lot of grounds and this should give you a base point of how to assess yourself before jumping into something like the Taylor Trainer so you can make the best judgment call for yourself on what training to do personally as well as give your your coach information if you have a nutrition coach or somebody like that. Um, Or if you're a coach, this is gonna help you better assess clients and understand where they're at and how to uh, determine where they should be and what they should be doing. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Part two will be coming soon. Part two is going to be all about determining Uh, volume, intensity, and frequency. So we're going to get very, very specific with the actual program design from a uh, load, volume, reps, uh, numbers perspective. And then part three is going to dive into exercise selection. So more of the nitty gritty where we really start to talk about what we are placing in the boxes of this. And then the last part of the series is going to dive into all the finer details, all the things that come last, tempo, rest, supersetting, so on and so forth. Um, As always, guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, if it gave you value, if it helped you out, please do me a huge favor. Share it on your Instagram share it with a friend, shoot it, somebody a text with a link to it. Uh, we want to grow this podcast. We want more people to listen. And the more you can help us share it, the more people listen, the bigger this podcast grows and the more we can put into it to educate you completely free. Um, if you want to check out the Taylor trainer, you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net. That's where all of these methods I'm talking about are implemented in an evidence-based manner because I've coached thousands of people. And we also have science to back up everything we're doing. And last but not least, if you have any topic you want me to cover in one of these series and you want me to break down part by part over the course of a month. Uh, You can click the link that says ask boom boom your question and you can drop us uh, a topic suggestion. Just write topic suggestion and give it to us and then we'll we'll consider it for the next series on the podcast. So until next time guys, thank you for listening and I'll talk to you soon.